he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Gotta get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each episode, at random intervals, I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker. Your name is Barbara Bell Geddes, but I mean, you knew that. And I am officially... According to the wall calendar that I keep in the kitchen, in spooky season. And I don't know, is spooky season as a term, is, has it become chuggy? Has it become basic? Or can we just let people enjoy things? Because this is, I don't know about you, but as excited as everyone was the beginning of summer, and everyone was going to be hot vax girl summer or whatever it was, and um, I was... I, I was not. I was not excited. You know, I begrudgingly put my air conditioner in. I barely left the house. I had this fantasy that I was I was going to have, you know, because I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm in my um, temporary semi-retirement right now. And uh, it's not over yet. But I had this fantasy. Oh, this summer I'm going to I'm going to slip on a pair of shorts and a, a tank top and then probably some plaid shirt over it because that's what I want to be buried in. That's literally what I wear. Every day, as many days as possible, especially in the summer, and then obviously some slip-on keds and dash off to a museum or a movie or, God forbid, a matinee of a play. I mean, I don't know how much that was even happening this summer, but I had a fantasy. And the reality is I'm giving Big Edie Beal a run for money when it comes to being a shut-in. I, um, I haven't started boiling bedside corn yet, but tis the season. I might start now. But the point of all this is that I, summer does not excite me, and talking about the weather is not exciting, and I know that, so let's just get into what I'm talking about. We're in the fall. We're in the quote-unquote spooky season. It's October, and it is an excuse to just talk about spooky things, to just watch horror movies, to just settle into that fall feeling, you know? And so my way of doing that is, of course... Finding the spooky micro moments, finding the spooky acting choices, finding the spooky magic and the minutiae that make a scene great. And that's what we're doing this week and all month on this podcast. I cannot wait. I've already planned it out. I have an episode planned for every single week. And God damn it, I'm going to stick to it. Hell or high water. I don't care if I'm 10 months pregnant, which seems categorically impossible in so many ways. I will make sure an episode goes out every week this month uh, because I've got, I've got some really exciting things planned. And this week, before we dive in, I want to just acknowledge, you know, last episode, I kind of put out the bat call, which is me, really, I mean, it just translates into me complaining into a microphone about why things aren't the way I want them to be. But I put out the bat call of, like, who's, who's doing, who's giving us a real, like, score in a movie, like a horror movie? Like, who's giving me, you know something I'm tapping my toe to on the way home, you know? And I, you know, the example in terms of a score that just like stood the fuck out very recently was obviously Malignant. And I was like, well, who else is doing this? And so one of, one of our, one of our, one of my 
a listener. I don't know how to say this. I don't have a nickname for you all. Like an all right Mary, you're Marys. They're Marys. And I don't really, I don't know what to call y'all. But some, but Steve, Steve, hopefully you're listening. Steve reached out and had two great ideas, two great suggestions. One, of course, is the soundtrack slash score, or whatever you want to call it, to the movie It Follows. And that's so true. And I kind of was aware of it, but I think I was like, oh, yeah, sure, right? And then I listened to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, right, yeah. So it the score is done by Disaster Piece, which I... I um, I assume is is his birth name. I assume it's his government name. But, you know, listening to it, and, you know, here, let's let's put a little in here in case you don't know what I'm talking about. I think this is great. I think it's great. It's over the top. It wants you to know it's there. It's fantastic. And what I like, and it's kind of reminiscent of Malignant, is I I like this direction. I like this idea of horror movies instead of the big Bernard Herrmann score, instead of angry strings and you know spooky pianos, which I can get into always. Never gets old. I like this kind of you know what would, what would you call it? Synth wave, dark wave. You know, real synth based music. It all. Sounds a little retro. I think that's fine. I think, you know, sounding a little 80s is great. And so I, if that's the direction that horror movies go in terms of having, like, a big score, I kind of love that. I don't need it all to be, you know, you don't got to, you know, dig up Jerry Goldsmith. Let the man rest. But the same kind of aesthetic. And I, I do feel like, you know, movies like Malignant and It Follows are taking that cue. The other suggestion, which is a movie I had not seen, is this movie from 2014 called The Guest. And, oh my God. I mean, last week, the word bonkers was thrown around, of course, last week. Last week. Like, I'm putting episodes out that consistently. Last episode, um, I, the, you know, the, the, the word bonkers was thrown around uh, quite liberally when talking about malignant. And I got to tell you, The Guest is... It's the guest. I mean, I don't want to say the the guest is. Uh, I don't know if it's equally bonkers, but the bonkers that the guest becomes is significant and meaningful. And oh my god, the music! So it's not a like just a score. It's you know, it's kind of what it made me think about is like you know the the Kevin Williamson era of horror movies. You know, and Scream, and I know what you did last summer, and etc. And having a soundtrack of like relevant pop rock hits and this took that concept into the stratosphere and it was like you know 80s and 90s like synthy goth music i mean i was so surprised dead can dance didn't show up as well as more like you know uh current kind of throwback dark wave music Oh, isn't that great? Isn't that so good? Ugh. I just, 
it's so over the top. And so the whole movie is just littered with music like this. And and I'm not I don't want to give anything away. You can find it, I believe, on Netflix and Tubi. Yeah, just Google it, you know, just Google it and it'll tell you where you can find it. But the less you know, the better, I think, going into this. Because the first two-thirds of the movie, it's like, okay, I think I've seen this kind of plot before, and I'm happy to go for this ride. And then the last third of the movie, oh, holy macaroni. Ah, and a climax set in like a, 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 a basically a haunted house inside of a high school. Amazing. Just so smart. I loved it. I, f- I really had a good time with this movie. Steve, thank you for calling this out to me. And, um, oh, my God, the music. It's like, thank you for that. That was uh, ah, such a thrill. Anyway, now that we got that out of the way, and obviously, by the way, if maybe that just wets your whistle of other ideas y'all have of music that I should hear or soundtracks that you love, of movies nowadays that are just, like, turning the soundtrack up to a 27. Preferably horror movies, but I'm open. Um... Let's get into, I would say, the least spooky of the spooky episodes we're going to be doing this month. But don't, don't let that be off-putting. I, um, I, think this is, I think this is a great entry point. So today I want to talk about a few things that I love from this movie from 1950 called In a Lonely Place. And if you are more of the, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre variety of spooky content, stick with me. So the reason I think that this is coming up, and I think is either, you know, it is kind of got its hold on me, and I've talked about this a little bit, I don't know, on Best Supporting Podcast, maybe, who knows? Let's just assume this is the first time I'm talking about it. But in my temporary semi-retirement and, and you know, spending a lot of time on the couch and not going out and having, you know... Uh, a hot girl summer or whatever I was supposed to do. I watched a lot of movies and I watched a lot of film noir, which was a genre that I kind of never really put my time towards because I guess I thought it was a men's genre. And I think it can be. As much as there is the, you know, femme fatale archetype of film noir, that often feels like an accessory in a genre that is much more about men in suits, you know, uh, pursuing criminals or being pursued and, you know, having, you know, long discussions in an office somewhere, lots of police procedural shit, stuff that, that does, you know, not interest me at all. But I think it is worth finding the interesting notes of this genre, and in particular, the interesting lady notes of this genre. And while I could do a whole episode about femme fatales, I just feel like that's a little on the nose. Um, I don't know. Maybe am I, am I being too cool for school? It's just not what excites me as much as the second female lead in these movies. I I mean, that was kind of what became my, like, hmm, should I save this to my, like, IMDb watch list and check it out later? And I think it's it's probably an extension of my interest in Best Supporting Actresses, that sort of ensemble function in a movie. Like, what's, you know... What are the, who, who are the women in the movie, and what do they do? What's their involvement in the story? And in particular, you know, where there is a femme fatale where you're like, chances are she's going to either get killed or arrested by the end. Who's my, like, you know, who's my final girl? Who's, who can I identify with? Is essentially what it comes down to. And the second female lead in a film noir is often 
a, a the more innocent you know woman of the two. It could be the the wife of one of the characters, or it could be the suspicious sister of the femme fatale who's trying to figure out what's going on, or it could be the lovely you know innocent love interest that our hero has you know and meets along the way. And oftentimes she doesn't get much to do. Sometimes she's like in the boring scenes, you know, and, and lends some lovely support. But when push comes to shove, when bullets are getting, you know, uh, shot here and there, she's at home wringing her hands or making coffee or, you know, curling her hair or just not in the movie. But I think what excites me is when she does get some part in the movie. I always love when a, when a female supporting character suddenly gets the entire movie. And probably, again, why I have an entire podcast with Nick called Best Supporting Podcast, a celebration of Best Supporting Actresses, because I could talk about it every week. And so I do. Uh, in fact, we're about to have our 100th episode. But a great example of this, because we could go through a whole bunch, but the whole point of this episode is to talk about one of my favorites, is this movie in a lonely place, which is primarily a Humphrey Bogart slash Gloria Graham vehicle, who are, ugh, I mean, movie stars. I mean, Humph Humphrey Bogart is an interesting male lead because, of course, he has such a hangdog kind of face. And... It really works in this movie because at times you look at him, it's like, oh, wow, he's very handsome. He's very dashing. And then at other angles, it's like, oh, my God, this guy's giving me the heebies and the jeebies. And that's kind of the point of this movie. So Humphrey Bogart's character named Dixon Steele, um, which is apparently, and uh, I may have looked this up, um, not been appropriated by any male porn stars that I can find, which is a real shame. Y'all are missing out. Dixon Steele? Dick Steele? I... <laughs> Come on, I deserve a finder's fee. So anyway, he plays Dixon Steele, who is this writer in Hollywood, who one night he brings home this hat check girl from this bar, uh, and later she turns up dead. And so he becomes the primary suspect. But his neighbor, Laurel, played by Gloria Graham, provides an alibi and that she basically saw this woman leave his apartment and you know verified that he was basically not where she was when she died. More or less. And so kind of what develops from there is a budding relationship between the two of them. And of course, Gloria Graham's character, Laurel, has her own kind of sad backstory, which I'm not going to reveal because I don't want to give away the spoilers here. I, I want you to see this movie. And I think what's fascinating about her is she's not a femme fatale. She's not just uh, a woman in peril. She's not, you know, just innocent and virginal. Like, she's got her own bag of shit to deal with. And... Uh, to be honest, from all the movies I've watched, that doesn't always happen, especially in film noir with the female leads. They don't always get so much complexity. And Laurel is really way more fascinating than I expected. But anyway, the closer that they get, the more she starts to suspect that maybe she was wrong about Dixon Steele. And maybe he's not as innocent as she hopes. And I think what's really fascinating about this movie is that as it goes on, it becomes less and less about whether or not he killed this girl and more and more just about the world of Hollywood that they live in and, and where this murder story lives within this kind of world of agents and writers and, and washed up actors. And of course, the detectives who are investigating the case, uh, ironically enough, Dixon's very good friend, Brub, played by Frank Lovejoy in a really, really interesting performance, uh, is investigating this case. And that is, of course, what leads us to 
the second female lead of In a Lonely Place, Brub's wife, Sylvia, played by an actress named Jeff Donnell. Jeff is a nickname, and it took me a while to figure that out. I was like, what is this Jeff stuff? Anyway, I love that she kept the name. I love that she was in, like, 1940s, 1950s Hollywood, where, you know, nobody had their real name. Just ask Barbara Stanwyck. And she was like, no, I'm going to go by Jeff. Thanks. It's great. So I... I had never seen this woman before. I was not familiar with her. As I was kind of going into IMDb rabbit holes of film noir, she would pop up here and there in, you know, never in a lead role, but really always in supporting roles. And so I think that's actually what drew me to this movie was like, who is this woman? Who is this wife? And then I saw a screen grab of it and I saw like it was just a, a shot of Brub and Sylvia looking kind of furrowed brows, looking suspicious, and I was like, okay, I don't know what this is, but I have to see it. I have to see who the suspicious second lead is. So that is for, I mean, there's probably three other great reasons to see this movie that we're going to talk about, but ugh, the number one reason I love this movie is about a half hour in, Dix goes to Brub and Sylvia's for dinner, and this is the first time that we meet Sylvia, and I'll play out the scene here just so you can kind of get a sense of the audio, but what it is, it's a great introduction of her character, is uh, Dix and Brub are talking about this case and talking about the murder and the details of it. And then we see Sylvia coming to the table and sitting down and listening to them talk. And she doesn't have any dialogue, but our really our introduction to her is her watching them have this conversation. And at one point there is like a five, maybe six second face journey of her watching dicks while he's talking and just not buying it. Why you couldn't have dumped it just a hundred feet further up the Canyon. I'll never know. Well, what difference did it make? Make a great deal. She'd landed in the lap of the LA police department instead of ours. All we know is that she was dumped from a moving automobile. No clues, no motives, no suspects. Present company accepted. What about Henry, what's his name? Oh, Kessler? Mm-hmm. Well, after she called him and broke a date, he went to bed. His mother brought him a piece of pie. His father heard him snore. First thing in the morning, he came down to the station. He was terribly upset. Substantial type eats pie before going to sleep. <laughs> Tell you what's wrong with you and Lochner. You don't see enough whodunits. We solve every murder in less than two hours. And some of them are tougher than the Atkinson case. That's because you know who did it from the beginning. Well, maybe you're right. You want me to help you solve this murder? I wish somebody would. For a, a, a supporting character who's really just, you know, the detective's wife, for this to be her introduction and for her to get, like, all that time, for us to spend so much time with Sylvia being like, I don't know about this guy. Ugh. This is the stuff that just excites me. So this scene is actually pretty fucked up because then what ends up happening is that Dix wants to recreate the the murder of this hat check girl. It's, and this is where the title of the movie comes from is apparently whoever she was with, you know, drove her to a lonely place somewhere, you know, uh, off the road and then put his arm around her and, and you know, strangled her. And so he Dix basically gets... Brub and Sylvia to recreate the situation, you know, sitting next to each other in a couple of dining room table chairs, and he's got his arm around her, and and I'll play the audio. It's it's pretty fucked up. I gotta tell you, if I was Brub, I probably would have let up a little sooner. Um, it's also worth noting, you know, we'll play to that point, but uh, Sylvia 
telling him to stop is her first line in in the entire movie and it's I don't know there's just something to that that that's that's the first time she speaks now you're driving up the canyon your left hand's on the wheel yeah yeah go ahead she's uh, she's telling you she's done nothing wrong you pretend to believe her you put your right arm around her neck you get to a lonely place in the road and you begin to squeeze you're an ex-GI, you know judo, you know how to kill a person without using your hands. You're driving the car and, and you're strangling her. You don't see her bulging eyes or protruding tongue. Go ahead, go ahead, brother. Squeeze harder. You love her and she's deceived you. You hate her patronizing attitude. She looks down on you. She's impressed with celebrities. She wants to get rid of you. You squeeze harder. Harder. Squeeze harder. Wonderful to feel her throat crush under your arm. Rob, stop it. How did it hurt you tonight? So then after Dixon leaves, Brub walks him down to the car, and we get another shot of Sylvia just kind of standing there watching them, and just there's just a gut feeling that something's wrong. And then Brub comes back upstairs, and, and we have this scene here that what I loved in particular about this is that She's suspicious, and she's written as an intelligent character. She's gone to college, and I mean, uh, we'll, I'll probably replay it. But you know, the uh, there's a great little uh, queer Easter egg in here because this character is named Dix. It really makes some of the lines <laughs> sound really interesting. So be sure to listen to one of Brub's lines about college. Uh, it's one of my favorites from the movie. Uh, quite an evening. Yes. Well, what do you think? Well, I'm glad you're not a genius. He's a sick man, Brub. No, he isn't. There's something wrong with him. He's always been like that. He's an exciting guy. Look, when I took abnormal psychology, there was... Every time we disagree, you throw that college stuff in my face. I didn't go to college, but I know Dick's better than you do. There's nothing the matter with his mind, except that it's superior. Well, he's exciting because he isn't quite normal. Maybe us cops could use some of that brand of abnormality. I learned more about this case in five minutes from him than I did from all our photographs, tire prints, and investigations. All right, but I still like the way you are, attractive and average. Well, thank you kindly. You're welcome. Yes, I know I'm a 12-year-old boy, but we're going to replay that line. I didn't go to college, but I know Dick's better than you do. I love it. Uh, there's a scene later where Gloria Graham's character is like running after Dix, who's like storming away and, she, and, and getting into his car, and she's just crying out, Dix, Dix, and running. And I was like, ugh, you are a Twitter meme waiting to happen. I won't. It's not going to be me, but I just know that it could. So anyway, back to Jeff, back to Sylvia. One of the things I really enjoy about Jeff Donnell is, especially in comparison to Gloria Graham, is Gloria Graham just has that classic movie star look, whereas Jeff Donnell looks like a real woman. She's very pretty. It's not about not looking beautiful or anything like that. It just, she doesn't have those stark features. I can't even think of who I would compare her to now. I keep trying to figure out. I was like, there's kind of a, it's Joan Cusack, but it's not. It's a little bit of Sigourney Weaver, but not as, you know, uh, Sigourney Weaver. I don't know. But I I just am so attached to her line delivery of, he's a sick man, Brub. I just, uh, and the way she furrows her brow when she says it. He's a sick man, Brub. It's so unaffected. You know, older movies, sometimes that, that transatlantic thing comes through, that stylized way of acting. And I just, there's a little of that with Jeff Donnell, but 
in general, I don't know. It, it feels way less affected. Sylvia has two other scenes in the movie, and she's an operative part of both of them. I'm not going to reveal them, but it made me so happy to see her given a perspective and to be given some purpose of the plot, which was great. Other things I love about this. Okay, so there's a scene where Dix and Laurel go to this, this lounge, and they're sitting around a piano talking, and there's a lounge singer played by a real-life singer named Hada Brooks, you know, and a lot of movies will have this where, you know, have a scene where the, the main characters go out to dinner and then we'll dedicate two or three minutes to watching a performance on stage. And sometimes that can feel a little bit stodgy. But here, oh, my God, Hatta Brooks. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm going to obviously play it here, but, but it's just a really beautiful song and just a really nice vibe. And it doesn't feel stuffy. And I think that's another element of these older movies that I get excited by is when it feels fresh, when it feels like they probably wouldn't film this scene any differently today. I had I was a lonely one till you I used to lie awake and wonder if there could ever be someone in this wide wide world just made for me now I see I had to save my love for you. I never gave my love till you. And with my lonely heart demanding it, Cupid took a My favorite moment to look out for is uh, there's a moment where someone shows up at the lounge and Dix gets really frustrated and he slams his hand down on the table and then it cuts to Hatta Brooks and she gives him this look and it, it's, you know, it, it's a two second long shot, but it's so informed and it feels like she's like, you know, you've been talking through my fucking song the entire time. Get out. Like it's a, it's a great little moment. So you can look for that when you watch this movie or rewatch it if you've seen it already. The other thing we got to talk about, finally, is Laurel has a masseuse named Martha. And, ugh, this woman is fascinating. She's played by Ruth Gillette. And I think what's crazy is how so many of the, the roles in this movie have went uncredited. Because that's, you know, just worth mentioning as well, is that the movie is packed with great supporting characters. And in a way that they all kind of stand out and they all feel sort of unique. And that doesn't always happen in this movie. You know, it can just be like, oh, there's that cop and there's that actor and there's that woman. And this, they feel, you know, much more finely drawn. But anyway, Laurel has this masseuse, Martha. And I read somewhere, you know, oh, there's a bit of a lesbian vibe. 
Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I love the idea of it. I'm just going to play a little of the dialogue here because Martha is a great character. She's the one who's really warning Laurel about Dixon. And it's not even so much about the dead hat check girl. It's about his reputation with another woman. And there's just something insidious about this where she it, it's almost as if she's warning Laurel, but there's also like almost an ulterior motive. I don't know. Here's a little bit of Martha. They still don't know who killed that check room girl. They don't? Have you met Frances Randall? No. I used to take care of her. All right, tell me. What happened? What did Mr. Steele do to her? Oh, nothing much. Just beat her up, broke her nose. Why didn't you warn her? Why didn't you tell her not to get involved with a brute like Dix? You can joke about it, Angel. But someday you'll find out who your friend is. I only hope it isn't too late. Because this isn't going to be as easy to get out of as it was with Mr. Baker. That's enough, Martha. Get out. I'll get out, Angel. But you'll beg me to come back when you're in trouble. You will, Angel. Because you don't have anybody else. Anyway, that's all I'm going to tell you about this movie. The feeling that I had watching it, probably about maybe 15, 20 minutes in, maybe by the time we got to Sylvia, it was like I... Part of me doesn't want this movie to end because they're doing it so well. But then the other part of me is so excited to see if they're going to stick the landing. Like I, I did not expect to be as, as wrapped up in this. And in particular, you know, instead of Gloria Graham playing Laurel as getting hysterical and more and more paranoid about Dixon, she underplays it in a way that I did not expect to work. You know, because normally I want somebody to lose their shit. I want them to freak out. But... I mean, towards the end in particular, as she's, as she's starting to plot, you know, a, a plan of sorts that I'm not going to reveal because I'm trying not to spoil this movie, you could just feel this tension and this panic that she's carrying, but she's barely showing it. And I think that kind of economy was really fascinating to watch. Anyway, that's all I'm going to tell you about In a Lonely Place. The last thing I, I do have to say, the last little bit is in while we're talking about Jeff Donnell, in my research about her, I found this interview that she did with this talk show host who you may more so recognize as the inspiration for Martin Short's Jiminy Glick. This man may be a whole other rabbit hole that we can maybe talk about another time, but more importantly, I found an interview from the 80s that he did with Jeff Donnell and Perry Mason's Barbara Hale. And there's a whole other rabbit hole we need to go down because Barbara Hale... I didn't even know how much I think I love Barbara Hale. I like where has Barbara Hale been all my life? Why did no one why did no one insist I spend more time with her? But anyway, I'm gonna put a link to this interview in the description. It's I think it's like 25 minutes long. It's so good. Oh my god. It's ugh. I don't want to say anything more about it. I just want you to watch it. I just want you to soak it up. But I'm gonna play this one part for you because it I think it's a great... I love the, the the chemistry between Jeff and Barbara. They, I think they've known each other for a long time. They've worked together. They're friends. So, you know, you just get this feeling of like, ugh, I just want to be in this room with these women. I just want to go to Denny's with them. Anyway, here's this great little clip of them. Ugh, listen to this. Films. Stage. Prefer what? Stage. Oh, I really... Yeah, I did leads on the stage, and I really think there's nothing like the satisfaction you get out of an audience. That's an, Everybody says that, but it's the truth. Everybody, but I haven't done it in years. Everybody says that. It 
terrifies me. It you does. Don't, you don't. Absolutely. As long as I've known her, she'd say, she's, let's do a play. She's never we done have one, yet huh? to do a play. Never, Robert? Well, no. then I just get terrified. Mm. We're going to do Ladies in Retirement before you know now, it. What do you think <laughs> about arsenic and old lace, honey? <laughs> I don't know. Should I put on a tote bag? Arsenic and old lace, honey. Oh, my God. How great is that? Ugh. Anyway, I think that's everything I want to clean out about today. There's so much more this month, so let's stop it there. But if you've seen In a Lonely Place, I want to hear from you. If you're excited by actresses like Jeff Donnell, if there's other second leads you know about that you want me to know about, like this kind of like niche shit that maybe like five other people are interested in, I might be one of those five people. Take a risk. Drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. Or you could follow me on Twitter, at Colin Drucker, or even Instagram, at Colin Drucker underscore. And I'll tell you, this month, if, if, you, if you hate the sound of my voice, it's going to be the scariest October of your life. Because I think between Patreon and the main feed, we're doing four episodes a week on All Right, Mary. We're doing two episodes a week on Best Supporting Podcast. And I'm hoping to do this every week. So I am doing this every week. What's this hoping shit, you know? Uh, in the wise words of Maureen Stapleton in The Fan, what is this bliss shit? Anyway, that's all I got for you this week. Uh, in the wise words of Brenda Vaccaro. That's it, baby. See you next week. That's it. I think I'll be going, if you'll excuse me. That's what I said, I'm staying, I'm staying.